again, I appreciate the kind uh, invitation and the kind words. I said to uh, Emily as we emailed one another back and forth before I came here, um, some sort of spell has come over Paul that he thinks I'm really greater than I am. And it seems that, that I can't cure him of that. He just goes on talking about someone that I almost don't even recognize as he describes me. So I thank you for the invitation, and I hope you discover that you haven't wasted a plane ticket in bringing me out here from the land of the fruits and the nuts. Um, <laughs> there was an article a while back. Oh, uh, what I'm going to do here is not original. It is parasitic on some uh, work by Helmut Thielicke years and years ago. Uh, Helmut Thielicke was probably the best preacher of the gospel we had in Western Germany before the Germanies were reunited. Um, and we didn't have a lot of them, but Thielicke was one of them. One of the books he wrote was called The Waiting Father. And I think it speaks a lot to the situation in which we find ourselves today. Um, I was speaking with someone earlier and uh, saying the obvious to him, it isn't as if children arrive with instructions uh, taped to them as to how you father them. Uh, most of us fall back on uh, what was done with us, and sometimes that wasn't the best in the world, but we aren't quite sure, uh, and there, isn't, there aren't any frameworks in America to sort of help us with it. And I think that's one of the things that is, is just killing us. Um, I, I was glad to see that there was one gentleman back in D.C., I think, that started the thing called the Father Initiative. And the first thing about it was, we are not the other side of feminism. Uh, and I thought that was a very wise move. Uh, they were just going to try to recognize fathers in a way that you don't see today. Uh, and I, sometimes I think if I see one more TV commercial where a wife explains an overhead cam to her husband, I'm going to shoot my TV the way Elvis did. Uh, where we're sort of sperm providers and monthly check providers, and other than that, we are uh, beneath despicable. And it's having an effect on our children. All right. Uh, coattailing on some of the stuff from Helmut Thielicke. Some years ago, a well-known periodical uh, published an article on prayer, and the argument went something like this. People today are being constantly assaulted from the outside by so many things. The best way to prevent one's being completely absorbed and devoured is to enter into a state of inward composure. The article goes on to say that this is probably similar to what the Christian calls prayer. And what did he think it was? Kind of an inner soliloquy. Uh, one need not act as if one were really speaking to God. Uh, the modern person is quite rational about it and abandons that old resort to a world beyond and realizes he's really only talking to himself. Behind the heroic set of this author, says Tilika, lies the whole tragedy of a child who's lost his father. The real inner situation that's reflected here, says he, here's how it can be described, quote, Man is walking through the dark forest of life in the gloom of night. Specters are lurking all around him, and strange sounds disquiet him. The dark forest is full of dangers. Modern man calls this weird sense of threat and danger the anxiety of life, the fear of life itself. 
He would give a lot if there were someone to go along with him. Someone who would put his hand on his shoulder and say to him, Don't worry, I'm with you. I know the pitfalls. I know the dangerous cliffs. I know where the robbers lie in ambush. I'll get you safely through. As long as I am with you, nothing can hurt you. We would give a lot if this were so. But the man in the article knows, or thinks he knows, that this someone does not exist at all. And he actually is alone in the dark forest of his life. So he begins to talk to himself as children do when they have to go down the dark cellar stairs alone, comforting, them, comforting themselves with the sound of their own voices. But nobody is there. He is dreadfully alone. A fairly common uh, description of how things are. Think of the story of Samuel in the Old Testament. He first hears a voice calling his name, and he answers, Here I am. Um, he speaks to the one who called him first by name, who speaks to him as a child with his father, uh, or who later on allows Samuel to speak to him as a child with his father, telling him all things great and small that trouble him. I mentioned earlier this morning, my father died in open heart surgery March 9, 1962 at Mayo Clinic. He was the 50th open heart surgery patient. And uh, in those days, there was no magnetic imaging. What they did was opened up your chest to see what they found. Then by radio telephone, phoned down the hallway to have machined on order what they needed to fix the heart. My dad's dorsal aortic valve was uh, calcified shut, two of the three flaps, and had been since very young. He had a rheumatic uh, fever as a boy. And so what they did was opened up his chest and found the heart of an 80-year-old inside a 52-year-old chest. The plan was, well, they actually did do it. The plan was to radio phone the measurements of those two calcified uh, aortic valves down to a machining thing in Mayo Clinic, machine them on the spot to the specs, sterilize them, bring them back and sew them in. It's uh, very primitive com uh, compared to what we have today. But because it was the heart of an 80-year-old man, uh, he never could pick up the beat um, afterwards. Um, we in many ways are um, in need of this person next to us. I don't know how many times I've said I wish I could call my dad. I wish I could call my dad. Well, of course, um, I can't. The closest I can get to him, as I was saying to Paul, closest I can get to him is Holy Communion. And the next closest I can get to him is to get out of California and get back to the Seattle area where it rains every day and back to the area in which uh, he reared me. Uh, but I miss him every single day. And I think I'm not alone. Uh, if you were deprived of having a really good father, I'm going to tell father stories in that long session, one after the other after the other, and they are all true. Um, I was sitting with R.C. Sproul and Vesta at a, the, the Warwick Hotel in, in Philadelphia where we have our meetings for the council. And they have these small tables where four people can sit. And Ben Sass, our young house Harvard genius, came over and said, Rod, can I steal you away from this table? Come over where I am. I said, okay. So I picked up my drink, and as we were on the way to his table, I said, what have you got in mind, Ben? He said, I just want you to tell these guys stories about your dad. He knew that there was something going on that was healing 
in hearing those stories. And there is. And there is. Um, the world is a dreadfully, dreadfully unfatherly place. Thousands of unknown graves, cemeteries of devastated cities, um, those who sleep in those graves, orphan children, horrible things. And it's always been so. Um, as long or since men have walked on the earth, have they not always been terrified by the fatherlessness of the world? Uh, perhaps mankind in its childhood could dream up happy gods who filled Olympus with Homeric laughter and sipped the nectar of immortality, and our hearts sort of leap for a minute, but they leap as they do when we hear a fairy tale that transports us back to the unsuspecting days of our childhoods. But this dream of reality soon changed for all of us. The more mature and knowing we got, the more we realized how graceless, how fatherless, how terribly orphaned the world is. The Greeks created statues of the gods, but we know today that this impression is deceptive and these statues are no, no more than embodiments of wistful yearnings. Same with uh, the Germanic uh, ancestors. The more and more you look into it, the Germanic art, you find the symbol of death and meaninglessness recurs with almost tragic monotony. Goethe, the so-called Olympian, once said in his old age that he could hardly think that he had been really happy for more than a month in his whole life. That proportion might hold true in history as a whole. Uh, the happy times like tiny islands in a world of blood and tears. It seems the story of the world is the story without a father. So the writer of the article would seem to be right when he intimates between the lines, we are all orphans. We would like to have a father, but everything in the world seems to indicate that we do not have one. Uh, then I'll, I'll be honest and, and not act as if I had a father. I shall let prayer alone and rather talk to myself like a child in the dark. Now what do we set up against this? Well, I'm going to retrace something very, very quickly that you can do in more detail in your own time. I'm going to retrace an argument for the truth of the gospel and, in fact, the truth of scripture very, very quickly. It's not original again. It's from my mentor, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. It's available on audio tape uh, out of Alberta, Canada. The audio tape series is entitled Sensible Christianity. It is a, a week-long intro to apologetics that he did in, in state after state and city after city in the U.S. And I couldn't recommend it uh, more highly uh, that you buy the thing itself. But here's how it goes. The father is concerned, first of all, not that Christianity be satisfying. The father approaches di things differently than mother. The father approaches things by saying, first of all, I want to give you something that's true. I was telling Paul in a break today, uh, finally somebody, it took a long, long time, uh, finally somebody uh, did this for me. I was a science major going to take over my father's surgical practice. And finally somebody did an argument that was objective instead of subjective, and I never had a Christian do that with me before. Here's how it goes. The first step is the toughie, but it can be done, and it doesn't mean going and getting a master's degree. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
when tested by the ordinary criteria applied to any document of antiquity, give evidence both within and without that they are primary source historical material for the life and acts of Jesus. You're starting with only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not the whole Bible, not even the whole Old Testament, and with them as history, not as God's word. If the argument works, we find that they're more than that at the end. But in the beginning, it's just as history. Probably the classic book on this is uh, W.D. Guthrie's Introduction to the New Testament. Um, it's not thrilling material, but it's necessary material for a religion that's grounded in history. Uh, none of it will make you fee feel pre-orgasmic in reading it, but it's absolutely essential. Um, that these things qualify as good history and can trace to people who were there at the time. Probably the definitive short book on this is F.F. F. Bruce's The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, which has gone through so many reprintings it's unbelievable because of how good it was or is. And then a fellow in Denver by the name of Craig Blomberg has done some follow-up material on that that's just really excellent. Uh, Dr. Montgomery's own book, History and Christianity, does this too. All right. Secondly, what we find when we examine the four Gospels is that the central figure in there claims to be nothing less than God Almighty in human flesh. It is amazing to me that guys in the Jesus Seminar can say, we don't think Jesus ever claimed to be God. And you don't think first of their theological liberalism, you wonder whether they can read. <laughs> you want to send them to Adler's book, How to Read a Book. I mean. I've heard some guys say that if you open any of the Gospels to any page, they can find a reference to the deity of Jesus in those two pages where it's open. And it could be true. Um, there are so many ways in which he claimed to be God. What's well, what got him crucified, of course. Huh? The Jesus of liberal Protestantism, who went around as the Eagle Scout doing good to everybody, would have never been crucified. The thing that got him crucified was claiming to be God, and since the Romans had removed from the Jews the power of capital punishment, they had to trump up a charge so that Rome would do the, the deed itself. But uh, they knew that he deserved to die. Uh, and this is just passage after passage after passage. Um, uh, to be a good Jewish boy is not to say, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Why are you asking show us the Father? That's a good way to get dead. Huh? Um, to speak as if you existed before you were conceived and born uh, is an odd way to talk. Or one that C.S. Lewis speaks about that I'd never seen. He would speak to people and, and, and look at one guy and say, I forgive you for what you did to him last week. Now that's an odd way to talk. He spoke as if he were the offended party. Uh, in normal human communication, you'd say, buddy, it's none of your business stay out. That was one I had never noticed. He spoke as if he were the offended party with what on, went on between us. Uh, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews or aren't you? He says, absolutely, and you'll see me return with all the clouds of heaven to judge the earth. The, the uh, judgment has been delivered from the Father over to the Son. Uh, and on and on and on. He comes to the paralytic whose friends had lowered him down through the roof. His first words are, be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven over and over and over. Now, 
it is entirely possible to do that sort of thing and be psychotic. What you need is Thorazine. Huh? Hmm? And there are lots of people in the mental hospitals who, you know, may think that. The story is told of one guy who kept walking around with his hand inside his coat like this. And somebody asked him, who are you? He said, Napoleon, bien sûr. Napoleon, of course. And the fellow asked him, well, how do you know that you're Napoleon? He says, God told me. And a voice from the other side of the room said, I did not. <laughs> There is almost no way to avoid the claims of Jesus that he is God in human flesh. It is all over the place. Um, he claims to have come in order to die for the sins of the world. It's not by accident that Lewis um, does what Tolkien did with him, presses that argument that he's either liar, lunatic, or lord. That, that makes sense to do that given what the documents say. And there are only a given number of alternatives, and they're logical alternatives, uh, more than theological. Then, instead of leaving the thing hanging in midair, he offers to those who ask an event by which the truth of it could be tested. Somebody said, give us a sign for saying these things that you say. And one time his reply was, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And in the back of the room somebody said, now we know you're nuts. It took how many people, 47 years to build this place? And you're going to do it yourself in three days? You're crazy. Then in parenthesis John puts, but he spoke of the temple of his body. Another time he was asked the same question and he said, no sign will be given to this wicked generation but the sign of Jonah. For just as he was in the belly of the Leviathan for three days, even so, kathos in Greek, just as, even so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. Finally, they got it. And it wasn't by accident that the Jews said to the Romans, you'd better put a guard by that tomb because they're going to roll a stone away and they're going to steal the body and they're going to go running around saying he's risen from the dead. Uh, be smart here. If you want the Pax Romana to operate locally, make sure you keep a Roman guard there because otherwise there's hell to pay. And, and that's exactly what happened. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is better attested than most, um, most events of, of antiquity. And to break the case is harder than we would think. Uh, many, many guys, uh, you might know the background of Ben-Hur. That was one other attempt to break the resurrection of Christ and to at least be rid of this fairy tale forever. And he ended up on his knees as a worshiper, just like Thomas. Uh, there are particular instances in there which are very important to people like me who are science majors. I uh, especially appreciate... Uh, the Thomas account after the resurrection. I'm so glad that that thing is in there. Um, where the doors being locked, he appears amongst them and says, Peace be unto you. And Thomas, who had said, Unless I am able to thrust my hand into his side or to feel the wounds, I will not believe. And Jesus appears there and says, Thomas, 
come over here and put your hand in my side and be no longer faithless but believing. And Thomas falls on his face and comes the culmination of John's gospel. My Lord and my God. Hotheosmu, a, it's, uh, a, a Greek attribution of deity to Jesus. Jesus at that point does not rebuke Thomas for what he had said and done, but he does say this, and a lot of bad sermons are based on it. Do you believe, Thomas, because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That has been used for more clerical idiocy from the pulpit than any 20 other verses in the New Testament. It sort of blesses never asking questions wrong. What was the Lord saying to Thomas here? What the Lord was saying to Thomas was, I'm not going to keep doing this to everybody from now on who asks for this. You should have believed, Thomas, on the basis of the testimony of the guys you know well and with whom you've walked for the last three years. They're not nuts. They're common fishermen. They're not easily taken in. They're as questioning as you. You just said it out loud. There was adequate evidence for you to believe beforehand. Um, I am glad for that account. Um, we who are in the sciences, I was in the sciences, we who are in the sciences have a hard time with those who always have the door of the truth test closed to us. Well, you just, you know, you believe it and then you sort of experience it and then you just know it's true. And every scientist tears his hair out, you know, saying, what are you talking about? Believe first. That's exactly what I can't do. Hmm? Well, think of another one, a pre-resurrection account. Think of the healing of the paralytic. The uh, crowds are so thick that, that the guy's friends can't get him through the crowd, so they go up on the top of the roof, pull off some tiles, and lower him down into the house where Jesus is on, on cords. Jesus comes up to him and says, first thing, be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. Another claim to deity. In the back of the room, the Pharisees murmur, who can forgive sins but God only? Are they correct or not? They're correct. They're absolutely correct in that. Jesus, knowing what they were saying, says, which is easier to say? Your sin be forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? Think carefully before you answer. Sometimes you go so quickly we don't notice what the question really was. There have been bad sermons on this too. Which is easier to say, not to do? Which is easier to say, your sins be forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? It's easier to say your sins be forgiven. Why? It's invisible. But he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man took up his bed and went home. Thank God for illustrations like that. Or think of John the Baptist. He has this uneasy feeling he's about to lose his head, and he's correct. His, his time is limited. He sends his disciples to cousin Jesus with a question. Are you the promised one who's to come, or are we looking for another? Jesus does not 
say, go back and tell John to pray more intensely. That's not the answer he gives him. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. That the blind see, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk, and that the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense in me. The truth of the Christian gospel can be known objectively before believing. I had never as a scientist heard anything like that before in my life. You mean I can look and evaluate first? That's very unusual across the religious board. The usual is try it, you'll like it, like Pepsi. Or you'll know once you're in. But everybody argues that. You'll know once you're in. I want to know which one do you try first. Think, there isn't time enough to try them all. What do you do, alphabetize the religious positions and start with the A's? By the time you get to the C's, you'll be psychotic. I mean, extricating yourself from a, a commitment is difficult stuff. Uh, think of Arthur Kessler, the novelist. Uh, he extricated himself from Marxism. It took him 10 years at great cost. Then he tried Eastern religion and uh, was over uh, listening to gurus. He set himself up uh, as a studying under a Zen master and then went to a Hebrew or to a Hindu ashram. And he tells the story of this in the unusual book, The Lotus and the Robot. Uh, completely devastated him. And finally, he and his wife ended up double suiciding in their Manhattan apartment. He was some kind of a lapsed Roman Catholic. Tragic story. The Father is so good that he gives to us, especially those of us who are skeptical, gives us the ability to evaluate the evidence, which is objective, not subjective, prior to committing ourselves to the Christian faith. As a scientist, to me, I can't tell you just how wonderful that was. Now, is that the only route? No, it's not, but it seems to be the one that's given most in the New Testament. Uh, and that is the objective side. I'm convinced the subjective side is also reiterated for those of us who had good fathers who were like analogies to the, to the Heavenly Father, and that inside we hear that sort of voice confirming. But it's the objective side I wanted to talk about here over lunch. Um, because of the uniqueness of that. Now, I've taken the position here that one of the first things the Father does is approaches the religious question through truth rather than satisfaction. When I'm doing another of the addresses here, I'll be talking a little more about the other. But, uh, but here, I think the most important thing is that in Christianity, you're given the ability to evaluate the evidence before ever committing to Christianity. Try asking that of any other religion and see what the answer is. I think you'll find very, very few who offer such a thing. Now that, to me, is connected with my father. I was saying to Paul during a break this morning, my father, for some reason, took us to a very pietistic Lutheran church. Now what that means is, it was sort of like Wheaton, only we baptized babies. Wheaton College, you know, where the, the questions are, how is your walk with the Lord this seven minutes? How is your prayer life? You're continually looking inside all the time 
for your spirituality for the last 45 seconds drives you crazy. Anyway, I, I said to Paul, I, I thought, why in the world, when my dad, when that was so foreign to him, did he put us in a church like that? And the answer, I think, is that he was so looking forward to the 9.30 Bible hour with the pastor. The pastor was one bright guy. Uh, he was valedictorian of his class and knew some theology. Uh, as just an added extra, he also had won the bid to first, for first tenor at the Met. When, when the service was sung, uh, I had uh, one of the three tenors singing the service, which was sort of nice, but that's not important for our conversation today. He wanted to be with a pastor with whom he could do some theology and give and take. And I look back on it and I say, of course. He knew that he would override the sort of triviality and inward-orientedness of Lutheran pietism with us, but he wanted to be where there was somebody who was really theologically inclined and, and literate so that he could dialogue with him. I think I'll find out in glory that that's why we were there. Now, I've had to pay in ways that he didn't imagine. It made an agnostic out of me after his death, but uh, we'll discuss that in glory. All right, why don't I stop at that point, and we have a little bit of time for Q&A. Uh, I certainly don't want to hold you over time. Thanks for your attention. Um, apply, uh, Rod, um, the Heavenly Father to our fathers if they were inadequate. There's How do we get better if our fathers are dead and unsatisfactory? Can you repeat the question? Uh, apply, Rod, uh, the whole thing if we didn't have fathers or our fathers were inadequate. That's the usual story, of course, for most of us. Um, I said this morning, and I'll say again, in ways this is so simple that it's uh, disarming. Every real friendship of true male philia is healing to our what we miss as children. Uh, philia, one of the Greek words for love, if you want to read Lewis's The Four Loves, it's a study of the four Greek words for love. Philia, Philadelphia, is non-homosexualized love between those of the same sex. The French would say camaraderie. Um, every single time we have friendships with somebody that we know in our DNA would go to the wall for us, it's healing that which we are suffering and have for our whole lives long. Uh, anybody who's older than we are and can function in that kind of a way is healing that. Um, I mentioned this morning, I don't know, even know if Robert Bly, the poet, is a Christian. But I know from what he's written that he's on to this, it may be in a secular way, that uh, the older men, we need desperately to help the younger men uh, into manhood, and we've lost all those, those points at which they do it. And it's showing up in the younger men. Um, anytime we do that for one another or with each other in a way that is um, without cost, of course I'll do that. Uh, we are healing that thing that's in us from so long ago. Male friendships become, become much more important than the, we ever would have guessed, and especially with older ones. I'm always, unconsciously, always on the lookout for men older than I am who are uh, sort of like that. And I know it'll do me good just to meet them, let alone to talk with them for a while. Um, 
men's style of doing this is unusual. Uh, I can't remember the name of the new western that was just made with Costner. Was it Kevin Costner in it? Whoever wrote the dialogue in that western gets men. He understands. Because of the few words and the way they say them to each other, he understands the masculine really, really well. And, uh, and that, that is healing to us. Always be on the watch for it. Always. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, that women don't understand why we men watch Tombstone 19 times. It's very, very simple. It's because of Doc and Wyatt. Um, that thing gets across philia. Uh, I don't know how many times I'll watch that as time goes by, but I'll watch it many, many more times because it's almost gone in the Western world. Um, not a lot of words, but boy, oh boy, oh boy. And, and one of the culminating scenes in that movie <coughs> is, uh, is when uh, Wyatt comes late to that showdown and the guy's already dead. And Val Kilmer says, I wasn't quite as sick as I made myself out to be. Earlier, he, Wyatt, uh, Wyatt had said to Doc, I can't beat him, can I? And Doc said, no, you can't. Then went and killed him for Wyatt. Tremendously powerful movie. If you haven't, if you haven't watched it in terms of fathers, watch it again. And watch Doc and Wyatt. Um, at one point, uh, they're going to have to go to the OK Corral, and Wyatt says to Doc, this is no fight of yours. And Doc says, well, I don't think you've ever said anything as cruel to me before, Wyatt, in my whole life. Hmm? Yeah. Well, just one other question for you. Is feminism a problem for men today? <laughs> yes. Can you say a little bit about feminism? But what we find ourselves in, I think, isn't really caused by feminism. When there was the, the, the father's movement that began in Washington, one of the wise things that he said at the very beginning was, this is not vis-a-vis -vis feminism. We've gotten ourselves sort of lost, um, and would have been anyway. Uh, I'm going to tell some of these stories when we have that long session. I was greatly blessed uh, with my surgeon father growing me in a gun culture. I will never be able to thank him enough for that. I, I, ha I had my first shotgun when I was seven. Um, I'll tell more and more stories about that. Um, there are men who would have loved to have gone up to the farm my dad bought for us just for that one single reason. And it doesn't really, it isn't really feminism that did it. It's that we know from long ago and far away there's something that we do that isn't really defined by the women. We know it. We not, may not know the shape of it, but there's something that we do that isn't defined by the women. And we're correct in that. We just don't know where to go with it. Uh, fatherhood has sort of gotten lost in, in the contemporary society. This is what Bly does over and over and over again. Iron John. Anybody read Iron John? Am I correct here? He gets this, that the son has got to break away from mother in a way that other societies help him to do. The men take him out on the hunt, they steal him away from mother, and he's screaming like crazy as they take him, terrified. Um, mom's gone, mom's gone, and we don't have anything like it. So 
the young man who had a weak father or an absent father or no father at all tries to manufacture it out of nothing. And I think what happens is it ends up like the show Heat with Al Pacino. Anybody see that? Whole bunch of carbine AR-15s on the street in Los Angeles. It comes out street warfare macho, which is, of course, as far away from masculinity as you can get. Um, I understand kids who are trying to do that. They're trying to do it out of nothing. There are no images that they're able to draw upon, and so you, you try to do it, and that's what happens. The young, why is it that 87% of the prison inmates grew up in homes without fathers? My heavenly days. Uh, this doesn't take a rocket scientist. Um, I hope that speaks to it. I, I could go on with this for a long time, but I won't. Yes. Can anti-feminism be a problem for males today? I suppose. Um, I suppose. I'm. I'm probably not the best one to ask that. I'm really not in poli sci. Um, but I do see what I've been talking about. I think clearly, and that is when the boys don't have fathers who initiate them into manhood, there's trouble in the culture. I'm not interested in picking a fight with feminists. Um, I think it's already going the way that it deserved to go and we don't have to do anything. <laughs> well, I spent my whole summer reading women. For me, that is phenomenal. I was reading Mona Charon. Um, liberals are always wrong about everything and always have been. Uh, Ann Coulter. Um, that lady, God bless her, may she be given long life and many children. Um, that, that lesbian woman who is president of now in Los Angeles, Tammy Bruce, the death of right and wrong. That woman's going to end up a Christian before long. She says in that book, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Christian. And then she says, uh, I met some Christians and they were kind of nice to me and they knew I was a lesbian. It kind of surprised me. And then she said another place, there were some Christians that I met and uh, they gave me this book by a man by the name of Lewis. It was titled Mere Christianity. And she said, if I were to become a Christian, it would be because of Lewis and a man who argued it well. She's going to end up a Christian, I swear. Um, but... I, I think that it's probably not going to be we who have the greatest effect on this. It's going to be those women. It's going to be those women clobbering it. I think we might be able to sit in our armchair with a beer and sort of cheer them on. <laughs> I'm a terrible prophet. I've been a, I have a perfect record of failure, but that one seems to me that, that we might be able to do. We can just sit back um, and, and uh, cheer them on as they do it. They won't be able to help us, however, with boys needing fathers. And the good women know that. They, they appeal to the men, please, we need good men. And it's not going to happen until you fathers are with your sons in a particular kind of way. <clears throat> yes. What are ways that men initiate boys into manhood now? There aren't any. I mean, that's part of the problem. Oh, oh, what are some of the ways that fathers initiate boys into manhood in our day? The problem is the absence of it. 
But the other thing is, on the positive side, that if you're with your son, um, there's almost nothing you can do wrong. It doesn't have to do with whether you're at the ball game. It doesn't have to do with whether you're fishing. It doesn't have to do with whether you're hunting or the things we associate. It's who you are with him more than it is what you're doing. It doesn't really matter a lot. He picks up the male, what, Fry, what uh, um, Bly calls the male mode of being, and it doesn't require a stadium. He picks it up from us if we will just sort of spend the time and, uh, and not lie to him. Don't tell him what's not true. It forces the father to say, do I have anything within me that isn't defined by a woman? That's a tough question, one of the hardest men ever asked themselves. Is there anything within me that isn't defined by a woman? Very threatening question. What have I got inside that isn't defined by mother? And that I'll give to my son because he'll need it too. That's a very frightening question. Uh, but one that must be asked. What can I give him that isn't just his mother again? Or a woman again? And it won't necessarily be like fireworks. It could be. The father's, the father's presence is extremely obscure and subtle. It isn't 12 gauge. Huh? It's 410. It's, uh, you almost can't make mistakes. You almost can't. Listen to him. Um, don't be the one that uh, is mother to the second power. I always wince when I hear the phrase, just wait till your father gets home. Being he has larger biceps than I do and he'll take care of that. That is the father's primary role. It's not power. It's not. Um, but the, the boys need this desperately and it doesn't really make, I think, a whole lot of difference what externally you're doing or I'm doing. I used to, I used to uh, live in Irvine. I escaped. I won't, I won't digress on that. But there were kids. I had my children in, a, in an Episcopal Harvard prep school. We have one of those out in Orange County, St. Margaret's. And those kids lived in $5 million homes. I would pull in driving my kids to school. I had a 79 Rabbit diesel and I, I would pull in behind five Mercedes and a Rolls to drop my kids off. Do you know where a lot of those kids were on the weekends? They were at my house with sleeping bags on a concrete slab floor where there was a pool table, some beer, uh, nobody would uh, jump on them if they said some bad words and they could enjoy themselves and I kept them all in the house so they were safe and they walked away from their $5 million homes just so that they could be around some freedom for a while. There was, that wasn't a difficult uh, equation. Just make them safe and let them be. Now, all right. Um, when I was 16 years old in Tacoma, Washington, I belonged to a high school fraternity and we thought we were pretty hot stuff. And one of those weeks, the pledges would hide and wouldn't come to the meetings so that we could paddle them and they'd leave clues around the city as to where we might find them. 
I was in my dad's cast-off Buick 53 straight 8 Dynaflow transmission car. And uh, I pulled out from a blind alley, very dark evening, and by the time I could see the Ford coming toward me, it was too late, my straight 8, the hood ornament was almost over the yellow line <laughs> as I was peeking out. The Ford hit me. He lost his headlight ring. My Buick collapsed in a heap on the street. We were all drunk. I phoned my father and I said, Dad, I've been in an auto accident. He said, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, we're all fine. Uh, he said, where is it? And I said, we're not far from home. We're here. But we're all drunk. And he said, well, stay there. I'll get the tow truck towed away. Just stay where you are. I'll be right there. He comes and fix, picks up five drunk boys, takes the other ones home, um, drives me home, comes into the house, tells my mother to leave us alone, very wise move, and sits down on the couch with me, puts his arm around me and says, what are you feeling? I start crying and I say, I'm shaking. He said, that's all right, that's shock. It's okay, what else? And I don't even remember what I said at that point. Uh, I was just blubbering away and he said, you know, you know what I think you need? I think you need a new car. Why don't you go take a look and see what's out there? I'll uh, take my lunch hours and we'll see what we can find. Can you imagine? That five minutes has defined my life for 50 years. I got exactly the opposite of what I deserved and I didn't even see it coming. A new car. <laughs> Who would imagine? And he was like that. I'm going to tell stories about this. He was like that again and again and again and again. I'm going to try and cast a spell on the audience when we have that long time. I'm going to tell story after story because these are the things that were how it was supposed to be. Let me ask you a question maybe a corollary question to what is it in me that is not defined by my mother? Might also a valid question be what is it what is it that is in me that is not defined by my father? Well, yeah, you asked, uh, somebody said, what is it, you, or you suggested the question, what is there in me that I can give to my son that isn't defined by a mother or isn't defined by a woman? And the question was, what, can, what is there in me that I can share with him that isn't defined by my father? You know, I ask that of myself, and I'm not sure. My whole horizon is my father. Um,